Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Craig Swanson is an entrepreneur, business coach, and co-founder of the online learning platform, Creative Life. Craig thrives being the secret weapon partnering with online businesses such as KaiserFit, Subrice Education, and The Wedding School by helping them into the multi-million dollar mark and even acquisition. And folks, Craig's got some background on various types of deals. He and I had a very fun uh, pre-call, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he's a fellow EO member. Uh, Craig Swanson, I'm so excited to have you on the Deal Quest podcast. Corey, thank you for having me for this. I'm I'm just been looking forward all week to this conversation. I had no idea where it's going to go, but uh, I enjoy talking to you. <laughs> Great stuff. Yeah, ex- excellent. So, all right, before we get into all the cool stuff you're doing now on the deal experience, you've you know you've you've had a, a prior ventures. I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe eight, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because uh, I don't know, a serial entrepreneur running. The kind of company you do now probably wasn't it, but you tell me if I'm wrong. Well, okay. So you said uh, eight to 12, was that the range? Eight, 10, 12, somewhere in there. I mean, so when I was 12, I had a massive mail delivery route as a mail boy. And I wanted to add on a franchise to that. I built my own little ice cream truck that I pulled on my bike and I got a wholesaler license before Costco existed and (laughs) sold ice cream in the neighborhood while I delivered like 200 papers. And I, I do not come from a particularly entrepreneurial family. I don't know where that bug came from, but yes, I have always loved creating businesses. Like, like, like that's my, that's my Play-Doh. Play-Doh is like yeah, the yeah. idea of creating transactions with people. You know, it, there's no wonder you and I hit it off from the beginning. I actually was just a guest on someone else's podcast interview <laughs> yesterday. And I talked about my business that I had actually with employees at 15 and, you know, the, and, and the host said to me, well, was anybody in your, like, who's your example or whatever? I'm like, I don't know. I didn't have any, my parents worked with somebody. I don't know where it came from. <laughs> I love it. So, so let's think about that folks. I love the idea. So of course, you know, you're doing the typical young kid hustle, right? Paper route, you know, you know whatever, plenty of us have done that. But then you, you say, wait a second, I've got uh, a customer base right? Mm-hmm. What else can I sell them? Right? Exactly. You know? <laughs> like that's, you know, that's such a fundamental thing that even successful entrepreneurs now don't ask that question often enough. Like what else yeah. can I sell to my loyal customers? Right? You know, and it may come up later, but honestly, for me, like the, the hardest thing to acquire is a customer base. Yeah. Um, like everything else seems super easy. Like a product seems easy. Uh, the offer seems easy, but like getting trust of a customer base is so hard. Um, I mean, we'll see where this conversation goes, but like, that's the thing I'm always partnering to get. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love it. So that's a great setup. All right. Uh, so one more question looking back before we jump into the more recent stuff. What was your first deal of any type uh, that you can remember? It could be as a kid or early in your career, something that's, you know, a deal that comes to mind. Well, I mean, so I was trained in sales. So I did a lot of sales, which which is deal making. But I think if we were looking at more deal um it was in my it was in my 40s but when i sold my business to my employees that was really uh in 2010 that was a mark of me transforming from what i considered was a small business owner to the early stages of an entrepreneur all right well great you know how to set up transitions so let's talk about that 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 deal uh and i and i love the way you phrased it right because we have several things going on here one it's just sale of a business that's a deal but you chose to sell it internally right so you did what in yeah. some circles we call an internal succession deal, mm-hmm. you know, which raises all kinds of other opportunities and issues than an external okay. sale. Often, yeah. often where the funding comes from, a lot of times employees can't. And I don't know if any of this is true in your case, but you can tell me. I mean, um, there's a lot of, there are a lot of pieces I did. I had a deal put together without the employees and it was even ex-employees I sold it to. And then I decided I'd rather sell it to them. And so I made a deal work for them with that existing deal as the base. Great. And, mm-hmm. and what, so let's delve into that a little bit. Um, because I think it's interesting for folks. So did you, uh, was there external financing? Did you have to do seller financing? No, I mean, I, I'm not claiming this is a huge win for me. This is this a business I had grown for 25 years sure. um, and I was transitioning into my next phase. I got I got an offer, so it was, not, it, it was an MSP, managed service provider. And so yes. I had a fairly standard offer from an existing MSP in our space that would, that would take it on. Yep. I didn't think it would do a very good job. I um, I had a couple of ex-employees that were competitors of mine that were actually, that I had enforced a non-compete against and and done so while keeping relationships strong. Wow. And so one of the opportunities for them was they got to work with all the clients they knew yes. and they got to run a company that they actually really knew and I got to hand off to people I trusted. They ended up like giving me an initial upfront sum and then an earn out over four years that didn't make me very much money, but it basically allowed me to support my family a little bit while the next business was in its in its early stages. I love it. All right. So I want to delve into something important here because in addition to deal structures and, you know, financing all this stuff, I talk a lot about mindset, right? Mm-hmm. So you did something there, which, you know, you just said casually, mm-hmm. right? But which some people wouldn't have been able to do. I mean, one, you Enforce the restrictive covenant non-compete, right, against yep. your employees while maintaining, you know, ex-employees, while maintaining a relationship, and then eventually ended up selling your company to them, right? People who left you, people who, it uh, sounds like, tried to compete against yep. you improperly, maybe. There would be a lot of people who wouldn't be able to get by those things, right? Just the internal body of work. So what had you be able to do that? I mean, you know, a lot of people would have written those folks off, right? They wouldn't have even been in the mix, no less, you know, a potential deal partner. So at my best, and I'm not always at my best, Yes, I like to think of myself, I'm trying to, there's a better phrase for it, but basically I play cutthroat win-win. Um, <laughs> I try to play win-win even with people who are trying to play win-lose. And the way I'm wired, I, I know what I'm going for. I push to the limits to what I need, and I don't push beyond that. And so... Mm-hmm. I think one of the things, whether or not it's a good strategy or a bad strategy has worked for me, I try to leave something on the table for who I'm negotiating with. And so I push for what I need, push a little bit harder so I can give something back at the end. Yeah, you know, it, it reminds me of a deal that we did in the wealth management space, but we had a client who was had a junior uh, person 
who I mean, was not so genius, had moved up to sort of mid-level, whatever, but, you know, had, had grown up in the business, kept promising this person equity and the be the succession and whatever, right? Unfortunately, did what a lot of founders do and never pulled the trigger, even to give a minority interest and whatever. And the, and the guy, frankly, got tired of it, right? And at some point left, took some clients, there was animosity. And then unfortunately, less than a year later, 11 months later, the principal got very ill and had no other internal succession and was in a position, the family was in a position where that business could dissipate quickly in the wealth management space, very personal business. And um, I will tell you, we ended up doing a deal selling it to this ex-employee, but it took a lot because I said, I said, listen, you only really have one logical buyer here that can maintain any significant value. Yes, if you want to hold it against this person or whatever, you'll find a way to sell this company, but it'll be at, at somewhere between 25 and 50% of the value because it's going to dissipate by the time you get this other deal done. Nobody else knows the clients, et cetera, et cetera. So we eventually got him and the, and the family by their, their upset uh, and they did the right deal. You know, but, uh, but I'll tell you, I mean, it's uh, one of the reasons I'm so big on mindset. It's, you know, what I talk about in my negotiating stuff, whatever, is that I, I believe, and this is a great example of where, you know, our internal work on ourselves <laughs> is, yes, is such a significant yes. factor in our ability to succeed and see opportunities and take them or let our ego or upset or anger or whatever mm-hmm. stay in the way. So that's why I love this example you gave, uh, you know, Craig, and the way you phrased it as well. It, it was a little bit later, but I'd already, I was very primed for it. But uh, the lawyer that helped n- negotiate our investment for the for the company that we ended up taking VC funds for, mm-hmm. at one point, just took me aside and said, "Craig, I just I want to give you a piece of advice. Most people never listen to this, but at this point, looking forward to what you're doing, do not be overly focused on fairness. Mm-hmm. Let go of fairness and just create something valuable here." Don't lose the opportunity because you're holding on to a principle. Wow. Yeah, I love it. And, and listen, there's a, I mean, for me, there's a balance to that, right? Like yeah. you're not going to, because I, I look at that more like the principles, we say are principles, but it's really ego. Like something oh. that's a core principle on who you are as a person, what you believe in, I don't think you should compromise. But I, I, I my sense is he was more saying yeah. to you in a very nice way, don't let your ego get... Absolutely. Like I, I was drawing lines in the sand, trying right. to establish some sense of control and we crossed those lines in the sand and I, I was going to blow it up over just a sense of trying to like hold a previous statement as more important than what we could create. But, but I also agree. I mean, like for me, and this is one of the things I end up doing a lot with when I'm trying to partner with, with, with new uh, with new partners is really try to separate out what are the core principles that we basically are going to turn down millions for and that we are going to influence hiring for yeah. and what are aesthetic opinions that we act as if are like like something we want to die in a rock. So basically what are the things that we actually are going to blow the business up over and what are the things that are just belief systems that we have that 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 we've never really interrogated enough to know whether like we need to enforce them. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. I want to delve into that, but before we do that, you mentioned the VC raise and whatever. Yeah. So let's mm-hmm. let, let's let's delve into that one a little bit. So give some context, right? You already sort of jumped to um, yeah, yeah. the advice you got from the lawyer and how you know mm-hmm. you shifted the negotiating approach. Give some context for what that what business was that? What was the raise like? You know, what so I'll, I'll jump back to when I sold my IT company to my employees. So yeah. um, I had gotten my company up to a state where it's running largely without me. So the employees were doing most of the work. Yep. Um, I so the company could afford for me to not do work and still pay me. 
Yes. Um, and I like to say, instead of buying a boat, which is a lot, what a lot more sane people do at that point, I bought myself a little internal training company. So I just basically invested, I was investing about $100,000 a year on an internal training company out of love, not out of logic. And um, I think I, I, I think we build $6,000 the first year, like, but, I, but I was innovating, I was creating, I just, I loved it. Um, we hit the financial downturn in 2008. Yeah. Um, weathered that, but there came a point where I basically, the business had to shrink to a point where it could no longer support a do-nothing owner and a and $100,000 a year hobby. And without going into details, because I, I could talk forever, that hobby, when I was pressed, I turned it into a moneymaker. And it actually incubated into something that showed a lot of promise. And between 2008 and 2010, we kind of developed that system. And in 2010, I spun that off into its own business and then sold the business, the IT company to the employees. Yeah. Um, and then I took in a partner who had been a client of mine up to that point. And then we were, we were, we were 51, 49% partners with me being the 51 okay. um, in the new company that was Creative Live. And we went through a lot of like rapid growth and rocky upheaval and, and, and various opinions that we didn't share, but managed to get it to a point in 2012 when it was really showing promise. Um, and uh, my partner really wanted to raise, like my partner really wanted to go the VC route. I, no. I don't know that I did. He was extraordinary at raising and no. we ended up landing a really great deal, raised about $9 million and uh, took, took investment VCs came on the board. And then basically from that point on between 2012 to 2015, like we were just on this rapid growth. And I don't know, so maybe ask some questions to kind of like direct where yeah, you want to sure. go with this, but. Uh. Yeah, I mean, listen, so, so you know, one of the things you pointed out and we've had other folks, um, whether it's VCs themselves mm -hmm. or, or people raise capital, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the gift and the, and the challenge of raising mm -hmm. capital are that you have to do exactly what you just said, right? In mm -hmm. other words, the game when you raise capital is that you're in a rapid growth mode. And if you're yeah, not in a rapid yeah. growth mode, they don't want to invest. And if they have invested, they're not happy. Yeah. Right. And it's going to cause all kinds of headaches. So you, you're signing on, you know, I've got a, I've got a good, you know, friends in, in my forum. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sold his, his actually a graphic design branding company that he had from the time. This is, mm -hmm. this is a cool guy. Uh, you know, Dan, Dan never worked for somebody. He literally started his, um, design and branding company on the side as a college, you know, thing, and then had enough clients when he graduated to go right into his own business and did that for, I don't know, 15 years or something. And then decided, you know, he wanted to do something bigger. It wasn't his passion. And he's now doing a construction robotics. Set. It's been a couple of years now. He's raised a couple of rounds um, where he's having uh, robots make uh, rebar cages. Okay. Cause it's been made manually for, for years, rebar cages for every column and every building you need is the technology on that hasn't innovated in a hundred years. Um, so in any case, without going too far down his road, um, you know, we've had conversations because like, you know, his, his, his original startup that he built organically from nothing, whatever had, you know, you know, nice typical sort of organic growth and that kind of stuff. And now he's playing a very, very, very different game, right? He's got okay. other people's money. They're expecting, you know, big results. And so, I guess I will ask it because, you know, the conversations we've had are about how that affects his decision-making process, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. On what you do. So how did, how did raising capital affect your decision-making process and how did it change the dynamic of how you grow in a business? Well, I think it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me professionally. At the time, 
it felt like something precious was being ripped away from me slowly, one step at a time. And so effectively, I was selling the company in individual increments over time and losing control. And um, I had, it was the most employee-like relationship I had ever had in my professional life was the years after we brought on VC. But also, we also brought adults into the room. I think in the end, we ended up passing up a lot of value that could have been had for the business. So the, the company was eventually acquired, but it was acquired below the liquidation preferences for all the investors. So none of the common shareholders really got anything. I had a little bit of secondary stock sale along the way, but there wasn't that much financial results as there could have been with other choices. But the education I got about me as an entrepreneur and um, about me and my role in growing a business and also my understanding about how maybe being in control is not the best place for me or for the company um, really kind of primed me for what has been an extraordinary right after that. All right. So a couple more questions before we get to this yeah. extraordinary right after that, yeah. which I want mm-hmm. to get to. So was this, it sounds like this was somewhat typical. You raised you know, a minority round where you still had control, maybe one or two or something like that, right? Probably. And then uh, and then at some point, and even there, right, the, the, the VCs have certain contractual rights, even if they might have only bought 10 or 20 or 30%, whatever, of the Absolutely. company. They have veto rights over any kind of major decisions, you know, that kind of stuff typically, right? The veto rights, we carved out a lot of equity for potential hires for, for an options pool. And also, my partner and I had really strong differences of opinion in terms of where the company should go. And so what I think really ended up happening is because we were going in different directions, it created a dynamic where a third party was able to basically be able to make a decision between the two of us. Right, right, Mm -hmm. right, right, right. So even, even when they only have a minority interest, they became the swing vote, right? Yeah, exactly. uh, Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, great. So, all right. So I want to get into uh, this thing you highlighted that, Mm -hmm. Basically, this experience was great because, of, you know, it taught you a lot about yourself. As I said earlier, I love the conversations of mindset and the internal body of work we do, whatever. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about how that experience really did, you know, whether it's the self-knowledge, the external learning or whatever, what did it cause and, and how did it cause that? So the big thing is when uh, in so see, around 2011, we hit a patch, um, we, we hit a patch where we brought in an external kind of turnaround CEO. We, we were growing fast, but we didn't have good controls in place. Um, and we brought in a CEO um, with just very minor interest. So that's, that's where it went from 51, 49 to I think 50. Basically, the incoming CEO just had about 5%, but that 5% basically created this dynamic where there were three decision makers and he was navigating between two founders that had slightly different visions of where to go. Yeah, yeah. And it was not a relationship that was built around friendship. Um, there was a lot of conflict, but it was conflict that was resolved and we really worked well. It, it, was a, it was a conflict relationship in which we created a lot of value, probably created like, like the most exciting growth I'd ever been part of at that point in my career. And yeah. like, I think each one of us were the most productive we'd ever been. Interesting. Like and the Lincoln in, team of rivals uh, kind of kind of approach. That they yeah. Talk about and, and really for me, I got to see how a really strong operator had had a difference in the company. And I also started to understand how unfettered ideas are not necessarily the strategy of success for a startup. Um, the one thing that John, our, our, our CEO, we brought in, he 
his superpower was saying no. His superpower was basically just shutting down option after option after option and laser focusing on on what he saw as what we needed to do and managing the money and managing the legal and IP uh, agreements because he had yeah. he had taken an a unsuccessful business public at one point. So he had gone through the process and he basically came in and was preparing us for due diligence from day one. So he was able to shut down a lot of the shiny object entrepreneur kind yes. of thing. Trust me, I, I, I know it. I, right? It's like, oh, that looks good over there. That's, you know, why don't we do yeah. that? would be exciting. Well, that's a great idea. Right. So, yeah. And it's interesting. You know, I what I hear you saying is like, you know, while that, that might cause some conflict and be frustrating in a way, and especially for somebody who is a visionary entrepreneur, mm-hmm. um, it's also such a necessary step, right, in a business yeah. that's in scale, right? And I don't think I ever would have given up power willingly enough mm-hmm. to allow someone to teach me that lesson. Yeah. yeah. If I'd gone through Powerful. different circumstances. Powerful. And, and today, you know, the, the, the last, you know, since then, I am, I'm actively creating that dynamic in everything I build. I'm actively bu- making sure that my ideas have elsewhere to go and not into the business that doesn't need them. Basically like a, a and, and I am partnering with usually visionaries and idea creators. And one of the things I do a lot of work with is basically trying to mentor people into seeing that the business has different needs than they do personally. And that, mm-hmm. that the business just because I have the, the need to create a certain number of new ideas on a weekly basis, that does not mean the business needs yeah. those ideas forced upon it. Yeah. You know, there's so much I can say on this. And I, I'll hit a couple of small points because mm-hmm. I can I can do two hours on my own on this conversation. <laughs> and it's not what it's about, this interview with you. But, but it hits so many themes because, you know, I'm that typical visionary entrepreneur, right? So I've said this a number of times on this on this podcast. I think uh, um, when I was interviewing someone else, I brought this up the other day. But you know, you need different types of people in your company, and you learn that, right? And yeah. and and you actually, the worst thing you can do is hire all people like you, right? Because exactly. and and first of all, if they really like you, they're not going to stay because they're visionary entrepreneurs and they're going to go do their own thing. But also, mm-hmm. it's just not. So I remember there was actually a, a, I I always forget who it was. And I wish I can credit him, but there was an EO member I think from your part of the country. Had a co- like online Bible company, oh, like so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's like like he 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 took off. By, he was one of the early people to digitize the Bible and put it online, and then other, other spiritual texts or whatever. Right, business was crushing. But he said that they actually almost went bankrupt uh, at some point, and then came back strong. Whatever. But the reason was because he made the mistake of hiring an optimistic CFO. Yes. And and I love the way he phrased that because he was mm-hmm. like, you know. What he was trying to say was how important the counterbalances in your business are, right? And usually the CFO role is the one who's you know going to say, wait a second, you know, great, you have those 20 different ideas, but let's talk about the budget. Do we have capital for that? When should we deploy it? Is this the right thing? Priorities, blah, blah, blah. But he had somebody who was like, on for, you know, like, okay, let's go. And, and that caused the major problem because he had no counterbalance on, you know, on, on the finances. Um, so that was that, you know, that's one point. The other point I often say is, you know, because I put these kind of balances in place for me, because I'm not I'm not a detailed guy, I'm not an operator, right? I'm not an execution guy. So I come back with all these, you know, great ideas and I and my team is empowered and and they they're not shy to say to me, you know, okay, Corey, we have this five other priorities, like that's not happening now. What do you want to drop? Or they'll say to me, Okay, so do you realize that you only 
have thought of three of the 27 steps that it takes to get this implemented. And like the other 24 are going to take something and are we sure we are for that? No, it's not going to happen in two weeks. We, you know, right. You know, so, yeah. you, know, <laughs> you, no, you, know, you start to understand you need those counterbalances. That is so much of my life. Yeah. Um, and for me, a lot of, so there's this kind of this balance for me of like how big could the company be and how can the company not die? The company has to not die in order for us to be able to have a shot at the things we want to create. And so just not dying is one of those kind of base level things I've always got in my head now. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's, so let's talk very specifically. I mean, you know, we hit it slightly in your bio, you've alluded to it, but what does your company do now? What are you doing? Who do you serve? I, I actually don't really know what words to use for myself. So if you, if you know what the term of what I do is, I would love to know what the, what it is, <laughs> but the short version is I, I left creative live with some resources. So I, I had money to invest and I had time and experience and I, I had waited out my non-competes and I was basically just kind of like ready for my next yep. thing. And what I do today is I basically partner with influencers or community leaders or trainers that have a large significant following online. So, you know, rule of thumb about 250,000 followers or more in some fashion, be it Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, email list, doesn't really matter, but they've got a large following. They have had some modicum of success creating online digital goods, uh, digital courses, membership sites like that. But not, not, not a lot of success, maybe about a hundred thousand dollars or so in the last three years. So, They've demonstrated some ability, they've got an audience, but they're missing something that's letting them like, take that to the next level. Yeah. And for the right person, I basically come in through a process to become a business partner with them and we create a company together that is a digital goods company and basically step, you know, try to get it to a million dollars a year as a, as a first step. And then there's this process I go through to kind of validate and incubate and then create a team and ideally march it from a million to 10 million aspirationally or, 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 or whatever the natural growth stage is for that. Yeah. All Um, right. So I want to hear more about what, how you help clients, but let's, you've alluded to, and I, you know, this is a very interesting discussion we had on the pre-call is that these are actually deals you said you set up companies with. So, you know, for, for folks, a lot of folks would automatically think, okay, you're a consultant or you do some sort of fees for service, you know, kind of thing. And you come in and you teach them and whatever, and you get paid some sort of fixed fee or hourly fee, or maybe a percentage of, you know, of, of growth or revenue or something, you know, but that's not your model. Your model no. is actually to do deals with these folks to set up new separate co-owned companies, right? Absolutely. So in, so kind of in short, that is the most common response is people assume that sounds interesting. I don't even know if I need to hire you right now for that. And, and you can't hire me. Like I, I'm not a hireable entity. I I don't work for, for, I don't trade time for money. Um, And generally when I come into a relationship, I'm the one bringing the money. So, so I don't know, like I'm, I'm kind of an angel investor, kind of a like trading service for equity, 
kind of a, I was almost thinking about this, almost like a, um, you know, a, a partial, I mean, eventually I become a true business partner, but, but almost maybe a fractional business partner moving into a yeah. full business partner. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. I, I would, you know, people think of this small companies, but I mean, you're in my mind, you know, you are a like strategic investor, right? That, that yes. has a mm-hmm. distinction, not just a financial yep. investor, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Clearly yep. a strategic investor, yep. you know, but even more than that, because you do an actual more, you're like a strategic investor, business partner, working business partner, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And I, so if you, t- you, t- you talk about EOS as a concept in, in this, if I use that language, will people know what I'm talking about? I, I, I think you should explain it because we have probably some of the audience, yes, and some yeah. of the audience, no. So in the world of EOS, there's the, there's the visionary and then there is the integrator. I, I'm kind of, I've discovered I'm kind of in this weird place, which is effectively, I am partnering with very visionary people. Yeah. And I am the integrator in the proof of concept stage up to about the million dollar a year stage. So, so I am, I'm not an integrator by default. That's not my natural working style, but, but there's a certain number of details that I can manage. And so basically my style is to keep the business super simple and to focus on product market fit until we get to a million dollars a year. And then empower someone else to take over that 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 operational side to start building the company i love being hands-on in this fledgling business trying to figure out how to get from you know from you know hundred thousand dollars to a million dollars like that range is what i love i'm hands-on i'm not efficient i'm like i'm like i'm like right in there in the weeds i'm not leveraged but then after that i'm a mentor to the team that's basically growing that to the next phase yeah, it's interesting because EOS, you know, which is an entrepreneurial operating system, right? There's a number of them out there, um, you know, has those distinctions. But also, I think of uh, this guy named Les McCune who wrote um, uh, Predictable Success. Hmm. And what he talks about is, and I, I love, he's got a similar framework, but he, I, I, I love the way he talks about it and it fits into what you're talking about. He says every business, every successful business has a visionary, right? Mm-hmm. But then the visionary needs an operator, right? Like somebody who executes, who makes it happen, who implements mm-hmm. the visionaries, you know, the vision, right? Then, so, and in the beginning, you know, and you could, at a certain level, you can run a business forever like that, right? It's what the, they call the fun, you know, go from the struggle in the beginning, whatever you get to what he calls the fun stage, right? And it's a nice little business. It's fun, right? You know, the visionaries doing their thing. The operator executes and person is getting it done, right? There's mm-hmm. no, nothing's written down. There's no systems and processes. There's no, you know, <laughs> team, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But it works because, and usually that, and usually that person, and they, he talks about it much more in terms of a employee model. Not, I'm not talking, saying this is totally you, but there's an aspect of it. Um, uh, you know, you don't need systems and processes because you're not at that scale yet. The person, that person usually thrives on being the hero, always figuring it out, always get it done, figure out a way to get it done. But then if you continue to grow, what happens is he says often you hit the stage called whitewater because yes. you you grow past the point where that works and now you need systems right you need you need things that are replicatable you need things in writing you need to be able to train other people on doing it whatever right and 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 naturally the visionary is not great at that at all because they don't even right know it's and the truth is that that initial operator person right that executes right is 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 not great at it either because and they also don't have the personality for it because they want to be the hero and they always want to get it done and they don't want to create mm-hmm. systems that are going to make them less valuable and enhance stuff other to other people so you get so you need to have somebody come in and do systems and just to follow through real quick he goes then you get systemized you can scale you get to grow you get to 
predictable success. But then the problem is a lot of companies get over-systemized and over-bureaucratic, and then they go all over the other edge, and eventually you get to something called death rattle. But I won't go all there. But but it's but it's interesting because you're smart enough to know, hey, I'm good at being an execution operator, integrator kind of guy up to this point. After yeah. that, it's not only my interest nor my talent nor whatever, but you know, so I better I'm gonna let me go do that with another company and I'll get people who like to build systems, you know. Exactly. And, and then I, and then I move more to a board role or an advisory role for, for me, if I have an art, cause I tend to, I tend to partner with artists. If I have an art where it feels like I'm creating something, it is creating the business engine that is self-sustaining. And so as long as I am a required element, it doesn't feel like it's breathing on its own. Like I, I love being able to step back from a business engine that I helped craft and build, which, and, and that engine is the flow of money, the sales system, the way the teams work together, the way decision-making process happens among people, all those pieces. It's not a living, breathing company if I have to be there giving it CPR. And right. so when it gets to the place that I can step away and it can grow without me, that is where there's like the most satisfying experience that I have. And, um, and, and ideally then, it, then I am basically meeting with the team weekly, but it's, but it's from a aspirational and, and mentoring role. A lot of times helping you were, you were talking, you were talking about um, people avoiding documentation because they feel like they're going to, they're going to like lose their own control. There's this constant stage where I'm having conversations with people about basically, are you like, are you going to grow into the next phase of leadership right. or are you going to know yourself enough that this isn't the phase of the phase of leadership you want to grow into and you're going to gracefully figure out an exit to stay in the size some company you want because the company is growing. Right. And, and I know myself to know that the next phase is not for me to be an operator in this next phase. Right. Right. Employees have, uh, I have that same conversation with employees and I don't know the words you exactly use, but that whole concept of people being so fearful trying to hold onto their own control that they, that they shrink the opportunity of the business to grow to their sense of control. Like that is that constant, not battle, but let's just call it coaching and mentoring that is needed at the leadership level. Yeah. And, and it, you know, and it's so interesting because I think for any of us who's been through this, you know, intellectually, you get to understand this, but of course you're not dealing, you know, you're dealing with people's emotions, their livelihoods, their, you know, family, be able to send the kids to college, whatever it is, right? All this stuff comes into it. But the truth is for the, for the person and for the business, the ability for that employee either to grow with the business and step up mm-hmm. or step out, right? Yeah. Yeah. If they can't, mm-hmm. is beneficial for everybody, for the business, for the management and for the employee. It's just hard to see that in the moment often. But there's a lot of denial on all stages of that. There's denial in the business. There's denial in the employees. Like, and, and, and it means that we don't have the honest conversations about what we really want to have in our life. And, 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 and for me, I kind of see myself as an advocate for the, the business has its own needs. The business yep. has its own needs. And if we don't honor the business's needs, it does not get to grow. And, and it needs it needs an advocate at the table, just like everybody else needs an advocate at the table. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for you, I mean, what, what a great, I mean, I, I identify because what for you, what a great thing, because all of your entrepreneurial energy and spirit and, and desire, like, you know, not to, I mean, um, um, you said some of this and I'm also assuming some of this because I know how we operate, right? You know, like, like you know, we, we don't want to run the, the same, but even though I've had my law firm for decades, right? It's always evolving, right? It's always growing. 
There's yeah. a reason I do this podcast. There's a reason I wrote a book. There's a reason I'm a professional speaker. There's mm-hmm. a reason why I invest in other businesses. Like, you know, because if I just did, you know, this law firm and I, that's all I was doing, I, I, I want to shoot myself. Right. Yeah. So, so you get, it's what a great, you know, setup for you. You get to bring your brilliance, your, you know, highest and best use, your talents, you know, your special sauce. And then when it gets to the point where it get a lot less interesting to you, and by the way, you become a lot less valuable to the business, right? Exactly. You become a mentor and whatever, and then you get to do it again. I mean, that, that's also the trick. I mean, my, my, my personal sweet spot for joy is not necessarily the sweet spot that a business wants to cap out at, but my sweet spot right. for joy is in the, in the world of zoom. It is a perfect Brady bunch. It is, it is nine people with me in the center. And yeah. that is like my perfect, that is my perfect team size to basically be able to move fast, innovate, create things and keep everyone together and mentor. Yeah. Um, when we, when we grow beyond that box, I need to have prepared the soil for someone else to be leading because I, I can do it for a period of time, but I'm not bringing joy. I am executing. And yeah, I think a lot of people don't create the opportunity for themselves that they, that they would like to say they would have because they're pursuing someone else's dream of their life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, because they're afraid, like, you know, once yeah. you build something that has some level of success, you know, and, and, and listen, I'll, I'll just speak for myself. Like yeah. I got to a level of success beyond where as a kid, I ever thought I'd be, right? Because I grew yeah. up in a low middle-class family. And yeah, yeah, I mean, there was a stress on education. I always figured I'd, you know, I mean, I didn't think I was going to be poor for a living, but I just didn't deal with people who yeah. lived like coastally, travel the world. Like I like I didn't, that wasn't my world, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't get on a plane till I was in law school. I didn't, you know, we, mm-hmm. we my parents got enough money later, you know, when I was a little older as a kid, uh, you know, to go to like the Catskill Mountains for a weekend. That was a big the big vacation for the year, you know? So, so any case, so my point is uh, it's easy. And I've even had that at times and had to fight through it. When you get to a certain level of success, especially if it's somewhere beyond where you thought you would be, it, this, you know, this tendency where you want to hold on to it. Right. You know, and even if you were a risk taker early on, sometimes you lose that, uh, especially, you know, if people get a family, they get kids, whatever. So um, yeah, to constantly innovate and regenerate yourself and figure out, what keeps you passionate is a phenomenal gift. And a lot of people, frankly, don't do it, even if it's successful. You know, you, you kind of alluded to a little bit, but there is, and, and even now I, I keep thinking I'm over it and I keep going through that. Like every time I transition to the place where someone else is leading a company that I've helped build yeah, or, or we sold a company that I've helped build, yeah. there is this loss and sense of mourning for an identity that was so important to me. Right. It, 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 it was, it was so acute when I stepped out of creative live, it was just, it was devastating. It was devastating. It took a year of mourning to be able to like, even like face what I might be um, separate from what I had been doing. Yeah. Um, and you know, in this last one, so we, we just sold a, a roll-up of online digital photography businesses together. Okay. Um, okay. And, and I've been through this so many times, and I'm, and I'm so proud of the transaction and the way it was, went through and all this. And yet, I found myself resentful that they were doing well on their marketing after the fact <laughs> because I wasn't there like doing it. I wasn't, I wasn't part of the team leading it. And, and like, I realized I'm not over this, like this loss of identity for something I've built, even though it is so much farther down the scale, it's not as acute. Like it's still there. Like in every yeah. transition, I feel like I am losing a part of me and rediscovering that I am more than that part was. 
Yeah, that's powerful. And, you know, I think the identity conversation is so deep, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's something that we, you know, we often don't talk about, you know, it's, it's and, and I think it controls so many, so much of our decisions that people who don't do that internal work and have the level of self-awareness and whatever, they don't even realize it. You know, I remember during the, I just had discovered during the Great Recession. No, actually, this was um, going back during the, um, so I had an office on Wall Street. Um, people don't realize 2001, the economy was starting to go bad even before 9-11. And then, of course, 9-11 happened. Yeah. We're out of our offices for weeks, et cetera. And uh, I saw the writing on the wall. And, I, and then I had a partnership split up six months after 9-11, right? And um, I went through a very deep, I had this beautiful corner office. I had a view of Statue of Liberty. I was on the 32nd floor down in 40 Wall Street, right? And logically, things were telling me to cut back on expenses, right? Economy was tough, all that stuff, whatever. And I'm like, and uh, and I did it. And I actually sublet my my big office and took a smaller office in the same space. And, and you know, logically, the decision made the toughest part was the identity conversation. Like, who am I if I'm not the, the big shot lawyer in the corner office with the great deal, right? You know, we're, we're both an EO. We talk, I, I talk with entrepreneurs, like I, I'm just, I'm aware of this because I've been through it a few times. I recognize the signs for myself. We'll have these intellectual conversations about wanting to sell our business or about these, about these, but we will, we will have intellectual goals and then we will not admit the emotional story that's driving our life that is completely contrary to our stated goals. That's right. Like I, I, I can't, so, and I, I'm part of this. I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs like me and fellow entrepreneurs like talk aspirationally about having a business that can work without them that any signs of my business showing any independence for me or anybody showing the initiative to like, like take that business in a direction that is not 100% from my fingertips. I feel this terror and I smack it down. And like, there's this emotional story that is just like completely derailing all these intellectual statements. And it takes, I mean, and you know, I, I really appreciate the fact that you mentioned like the self work work, because if I'm not aware of the emotional story that's driving all of these, like it doesn't matter uh, what intellectual decisions I make, what professionals I hire, everything else. I've seen people get 95% done with a deal and just exploded over something that is very clearly not relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's emotionally relevant, right? Or psychologically. Exactly. Not, but, right. But, and, but not logically. And maybe and maybe they are both pissed off that it didn't close and secretly relieved. Like, like the, like they are so happy that the deal blew up. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it, it, it's such a powerful conversation. And mm-hmm. it's sort of, um, you know, you said something earlier in the interview, which I think sort of relates to this uh, where, you know, in the, in the VC funded company where you mm-hmm. said that you wouldn't have given up power voluntarily. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's, that's, um, along the lines of the, the the conversation we're talking about now. Yeah, I mean, I got introduced to a version of me that I never would have met willingly, and and that version of me is so much happier. But but I would have I would have fought tooth and nail any like if if I had the control, that version of me never would have surfaced. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and that that's such a powerful statement. Um, mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, and, and listen, we see it. I mean. Uh, just to give EO a shout out, I know both you and I are long-term members and big fans. Mm-hmm. You know, EO is such a great community because we can have these kind of conversations, right? And we do in our yeah. forums and in other events or whatever because we 
you know, the, the forms that really work and the relationships that really work and you go, you go really deep, right? And you can, because we have shared experience, right? We've all been, we've been through this. So we can start having these conversations. And at the same time, even in the EO community, and I'm not, it's not a criticism. It's just, it's the entrepreneurial community generally. You know, when you meet most people until you really get to know them and go there, you know, they, they really talk about themselves like they're so identified with their business, right? I mean, even being an EO and having a million dollars in revenue to be able to qualify, right? Like, let's start there. Just like yeah. having that as, you know, as a, as a, you know, a, a, you know, an identifier of who you are, right? Is, you know, is, is, is part of that conversation. And, um, you know, and, and even, even growth. I mean, we talk about this a lot. And listen, I'm, what I do is help, I help businesses grow, right, through deals. That's, that's a big part of what I, what I do. And I love yeah. working with clients from startup all the way through exit. And I've had situations where I help startup companies and I help them exit. It's very satisfying. And I'm a proponent of it, but only from a grounded place, only from a, like so many, I've seen too many examples of people because of this entrepreneurial identity of having to grow of people growing and then being dissatisfied or like it's not really aligned with who they are. So growth, you know, in and of itself is not a, you know, it's not, I mean, it's, it's an entrepreneurial value that people, it's one of those external things, right. That, mm -hmm. that sometimes drives, drives people. And it's not really a pure motivation, you know, uh, in and of itself. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I asked one of my lawyers during a deal once because he worked with clients of all different levels. And I basically said, is there, if you take out comparison, if, if, if like, if you take out, basically measuring your stick against other people. Like right. what are the thresholds of either like growth or wealth at which like, it doesn't matter anymore. Like, like where does the actual effect in my life just not matter right. beyond right. a game of comparison? And right. I will say the only thing that came out for me, for me was private air travel is one threshold that does have a dramatic <laughs> impact in life. So basically when you're, when you're not, when you're not flying commercial, like there is this window that opens up. So if you're like near that threshold, it might be worth going a little bit farther for that. But other than that, like other than that, it's all internal. I, I love it. I love it. That's the distinction. That's right. I, yeah. I push a little bit for, for, for private, which, which I totally get. I, yeah. I'm not, I don't, fly private regularly uh uh i have but i have not regularly but i will tell you i remember i remember the time i made a decision that i'm i'm not that i'm going to be flying in the front of the plane like yeah. no matter what it costs pretty much mm -hmm. I, I still have some limit uh, occasionally you get an individual flight which is absurd um but then i'll just find another flight to fly in the front right i won't, I won't. <laughs> um but but just you know just that decision quality of life, you know, whatever. So I'm not, I'm not saying that there, there, there are certain, you know, but it's interesting and in, yeah, where it comes from. This has been, listen, I, as I felt on the pre-call, Greg, we can talk forever. You and I will continue to have great entrepreneurial conversations. Uh, but uh, on a podcast, we do have to end it at some point. So I'm going to, I'm just going to, uh, two final questions. One is um, how can people find out more about you? Where did I go to find out more about what you do? The best place to get a hold of me is my name. Uh, so craigswanson.org. It's not .com. He won't sell me .com, but craigswanson.org or find me on LinkedIn. And if you're in the Seattle area or in the general Seattle area, I am the chair for EO Accelerator. And if you are a small business owner that is not broken a million and wants to, we are a support group and a, and a membership group for you. You should definitely check us out. Love it. I, I got to tell you, and I, I think I mentioned this to Greg on a pre-call, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was president of the New York chapter for two years. I felt various mm -hmm. roles. Probably my favorite thing I've ever done is when I mentored accelerators in the, in, mm -hmm. in the new accelerator program. Uh, and in fact, one of my, the, the four mate I mentioned who has this big, 
funded company now was an accelerator uh, and graduated and, and joined my forum. So mm-hmm. definitely, definitely. All right. Final question, Craig, on the podcast. I always uh, ask about my highest value in life, my highest ideal, which is freedom. And to me, that means everything from freedom from all people around the world from oppression to the reason why I haven't had a boss in decades and, mm-hmm. and I'm an entrepreneur. Um, what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? So for me, for me, true freedom for me means that I am so uninfluenced by other people's opinion of me that I am willing to lose at the world's game in pursuit of the game that I want to play. And, and if I, if I could give up all of the accolades of the world in trade for losing at the game that I want to play, that's what freedom would be for me. The, the, uh, the clarity to, to have that. I'm willing to give up. I'm trying to get that phrase you said because it was mm-hmm. powerful. I'm willing to give up at winning the world's game for to play the game that I play the play. game that I want to play. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. That is one of my favorite answers to that question. I've asked it on, you know, over a hundred times. Craig Swanson, thank you for being an amazing guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Corey, thank you for having me. This has been fantastic. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.